0: Well, we are in the book of uh, Titus uh, once more today, so go ahead and find that small little book toward, toward, kind of toward the end of the New Testament there. The book of Titus, I'll remind you, is a pastoral epistle. An epistle means letter, so it was a letter written to offer some pastoral advice from the Apostle Paul to two young men in the ministry, men that he had worked closely with and he entrusted uh, a great deal to a guy by the name of Timothy and a fellow by the name of Titus. And so there are three pastoral epistles. And Timothy, Paul wrote two books to him. Titus, Paul wrote a book to him. Very similar material. So it was a little while ago that we were in the book of Titus, maybe three months ago or so. Um, So a lot of similar material in these uh, two books, but they're not exactly the same because the circumstances that each of them were facing were different. And so Paul's going to emphasize certain things, address different things, and so on. And so we'll see there's a lot of similarities between the two, but there is a significant difference. One of those similarities is that both men were instructed in the communities that they were going to was to appoint qualified leaders that could lead those uh, churches in those communities. They're called elders. Other times they're called overseers. Sometimes in the Bible they're called pastors. But these folks that are going to serve as leaders of a congregation Paul gave some qualifications for those individuals. So he says, uh, you need to appoint them when you get into each of these towns, and these are the type of people that you are going to be looking for. So that's one of the key things that Paul will address with Titus in the remainder of chapter 1. The second thing that Paul will turn his attention to, we'll consider it next week, but the second thing is that these elders, among other things, they're going to have to deal with the false teachings and the false teachers that are making their way into the congregation too. So it's gonna be their responsibility to teach good, sound doctrine, and also to address poor doctrine, or bad doctrine, or unsound, is unsound a word? I don't know, it is. Um, They need to address that as well. And so verses five to nine, who these leaders should be, and the end of the chapter, verses 10 through 16, dealing with these false teachers. Today we're going to address verses five to nine, about qualified leaders. Here, let me just read this to you, please. Verses 5 through 9, it says, Now this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I have directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God stored, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but rather hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now verse five, the first thing that we can see here, we learn here in verse 5, I mentioned this last week, is that you could tell from the verse that Paul had previously been with Titus on the island of Crete. Again, remember, the island of Crete is not some tiny little deserted island floating out in the Mediterranean. It was an island the size, square mileage of the um, the nation or the state of Delaware. So 3,000 some square miles. It was a big area of land. There was something to between 90 and 100 towns, villages, or cities that were located on the island. This is a pretty uh, booming place in the world. A lot of people lived there. It was one of the most populated regencies there of the nation of Greece, the island of Crete. So a lot of people lived there, and there were likely many, many churches on the island. One church, capital C, followers of Jesus Christ, but many different villages and towns that had their own body of believers, much like we do. And Paul tells Timothy here, I left you on Crete to finish some of the things we didn't get a chance to finish together when I was with you. So that's the first lesson, is that we learn that Paul left Titus in Crete, meaning he himself had been there. And Titus, I need you to remain because there's still work to do, he says to him. They began to tackle some of the issues. You look at verse 5, it goes on, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. They had, they had begun addressing some of the issues, but they had certainly not fully accomplished what they needed to accomplish. And Paul, with the demands having to go elsewhere, trusting Titus the way that he did, he leaves Titus to finish up that work, put it into order. That's a medical term. It refers to setting a broken arm. It's the same idea. And so, There were things on the island there that were broken, that were crooked, that needed to be straightened again. And that's going to be the responsibility of Titus on the island. He says to him, Titus, appoint elders in every town. And then he'll go on from there, and he's going to give instructions very similar to what he gave to Timothy about the qualifications of those elders. And so if you were thinking about, okay, we have this business and we need to form a leadership team, there would be certain qualities you're beginning to look for. Well, this guy, what degree does he have? Or this lady, what's her experience? And, and you'd be looking for things like that. If you were forming a leadership team of any sort, depending on what that leadership team was going to lead, would be the qualifications you would be looking for. And it's very, I think it's very interesting to note the qualifications that Paul puts forward for Timothy and for Titus. He doesn't talk about their advanced degrees, he doesn't talk about their work experience, he doesn't talk about you know, their background in this arena or that arena, or can they do this or can they do that. He talks about the quality of their character. And that's the primary responsibility that Paul gives to Titus, find men of quality character, and he'll give us some list of those, and that's the men that you should appoint to serve as leaders of your, quali- of your uh, churches in each of these communities. I might recommend, I'm not going to go as depth today, uh, as deep today, as we typically do when we go verse by verse, because 1 Timothy chapter 3, with just a very few exceptions, is the exact same listing, maybe different word usage for the same meaning. And so I might encourage you, go back, find that sermon that we did maybe four months ago. It's on our website, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and you could hear some of the more in-depth teaching on the qualifications of these leaders, but I will reference some of them, especially if you weren't here with us. Paul, he begins, he says, appoint elders in every town. So Paul's not leaving, so this is like a ministry of church government. Paul is not leaving Titus to be the Pope of Crete, or the Cardinal of Crete, the term it gets a little confusing, or the Bishop of Crete. Paul is sending Titus there to appoint local leaders over each of the congregations, and not even just to appoint one guy over each church, but elders over each one of these congregations. Each local church was to have its own leadership team from that church that would be leading and serving the, the body of believers. And Titus's responsibility, he was going to be an apostolic representative Paul would do it if he could do it, if he could be there, but he can't. He has other engagements he needs to be at. And so he, if you will, gives Titus the authority to do it. And Titus is going to appoint these various people to serve in these roles. Different churches approach this differently. Some will do a popular vote. It's election time. We'll hang signs up on the wall, vote for me, you know, or whatever. Some churches do it that way. Maybe not that way, but similar to that way. Paul doesn't say this isn't, gonna, this isn't done by popular vote. This isn't done by people campaigning and, hey, if you pick me, I'll support you for that and you know, together, and if we both get on, then we can change it. it it's none of those things. All right? Titus was to go in, sit, meet with the people, talk with the people, interview the people, if you will, have meals with the people, share life with the people, and begin to discern you're a leader of this congregation. I, I'm, I'm going to officially appoint you as one. But you already are one, and that's obvious, and it can be seen. He'll go on, and he'll start to describe describe their character. Now, before we look at that character, let me just point out to you, Paul uses two different terms in this passage that some conclude are two different positions. I don't think that's what Paul is doing. So the first term that Paul's going to use is in verse 5, and it's the word elder. In verse 7, he's going to use a word that's often translated as overseer. I believe they're both the same position. Some people look at it a little bit differently here, but we're talking about the same thing. Paul will sometimes talk about the work of the leader of a local church and call him an elder. Sometimes he'll call him an overseer. And there's other places in the Bible where he'll call that person a shepherd or a pastor. And so my understanding of it is, is an elder, an overseer, a pastor— or all talking about the same person or uh, same position in the church. All right? So that's the angle that I will be coming at it. Either way, we're, what we're looking at are qualifications of these people. Elder describes sort of the, the maturity level of the individual. Now, Paul's not saying you gotta be old to be an elder, but he's talking about the maturity level of that individual, and that oftentimes will come with time. Just because a person is in their 60s or 70s doesn't mean they qualify. Just because a person has been a Christian for 30 years doesn't mean they qualify. But there is something that comes with time that leads to a maturity inside of a person. When Paul uses the word elder, he's referring to that. When he uses the word overseer, he's describing a little bit more the responsibility of the individual the task of the individual, the work that they're going to be doing in the lives of people. And then when he uses the word shepherd, well, that word explains what they're doing. They're shepherding a flock of people. They're guiding a flock of people. They're running down and chasing the sheep that goes off here, and they're keeping the other ones there, and they're making sure it's hot today. Let's get into the cool. They're shepherding. They're guiding. They're leading the folks that are there. So with that, Paul says, appoint elders in every town, as I directed you, if you're into this sort of thing, this word elder, it's the Greek word presbyteros. It sounds a lot like Presbyterian. And so there is a, uh, a segment of the Christian church that follows the Presbyterian style of governance. And they are very much elder-led. Uh, and that's where the word comes from, this word presbyteros. The word that he uses for overseer is the word episkopos. Which doesn't quite look like it, but if you if you squint hard enough, it does. It that's where we get the word bishop from, uh, and so it, trust me, uh, it's where we get that word from here. And so you just got to change the the p to a b and the other one, to, and then it's totally there. You, you'll see it. Um, and that's a style of leadership which is a, a little more. Uh, one person is sort of elevated into a particular role of leadership, and there's churches that follow that model. I think we are a blend here at Calvary. And so I do a lot of the direct leading of our congregation, but we have a ministry team of elders that are right alongside of me and ministering alongside of me. And so nonetheless, we're a blend of it. Right or wrong, I don't know. We're doing our best. Pray for us. Um, Here. He says uh, some things. Oh, (laughs) what he doesn't say Okay, well, what are they to do? I know You'll see. We'll get there. I know what they're to be. They're to be quality individuals. I get that. But what are they to do? Paul doesn't really get into that with Titus and Timothy, probably because they already knew. He probably already explained it to them. But throughout the New Testament, it is referenced what the elder and overseers are to do. And I'm just going to give you sort of a smattering of them, okay? That we know from the book of Acts, chapter 20... 1 Timothy chapter 3 and 1 Peter chapter 5 is that elders overseers and pastors are called to shepherd and care for God's flock. That's kind of a your job responsibility. So this, you know, some people they they start to share their problems with you and you're kind of like, "Hey, look man, not my problem. Don't share it with me." Well, not so for the pastor. That's the pastor, the elder overseer's job is I'm um, to care for the flock. I'm um, to help people through life's circumstances that they're facing their problems become my problems, if you will, in my heart and in our hearts. Next thing we learn from Acts chapter 20, Hebrews chapter 13, is they are to protect the church from attacks, both within, and we see in the scripture that that happens, and without. And so they, they help the people process those types of things. They might deal with problem individuals, both inside and without, because they're protecting the congregation like a shepherd would protect the sheep. We learn from a whole bunch of places, I won't even bother. But they are to lead and to rule, but it tells us how they lead and rule, that they guide. They don't drive. You understand what I'm saying? We don't have whips. We don't give out whips to the pastors or the elders, but we incur come on, follow me. They're to teach sound doctrine, First Timothy 5, and today we'll see that in the book of Titus chapter 1. They're to actually play a role in moderating and arbitrating in doctrinal and ethical matters. And so two people might come together and say, look, we're having a problem. And the pastor's responsibility, the elder's responsibility is to help them navigate that difficulty that they're having with one another. We learned that in Acts 15 and Acts chapter 16. Hebrews 13, 1 Peter 5 are very clear that they are to serve as an example of living to the congregation, that people can look at their life and say, that's a standard of living that I want to live myself. They're supposed. The elder is required to do that, and it's a responsibility of the elder to do that. We learned from Galatians chapter 6 that if a person has fallen and has been overtaken in a sin, that it's a responsibility of an elder, a pastor, and a teacher to come alongside of that person and help restore that person to their relationship with God, as opposed to saying, look, you blew it, you're done, don't ever come back here. Rather, come on, man, let me help you, and let me help you get restored in your relationship with the Lord. We learn from the book of James that, particularly with those that are sick, but I think it's beyond that, is the elder, the pastor, and the overseers to have a ministry of prayer in the lives of others, and particularly called to come and to pray for the sick that they may be well. In Acts chapter 11, we see that there are poor saints, those with greater needs than others financially, and that it's the responsibility of the elders of a church to get involved in the care of those individuals. Now, this doesn't mean the pastor, the elders, the overseers are going to be doing all of this work, but they're going to be making sure that the body of believers that they're called to lead is doing this sort of work. I think a great example of this is a, a few years back, it, it was probably before COVID, where Will taught a class to whoever might want to come. We had like 35, 40 people here on how to minister to those like in a hospital situation or in a sick situation. And so now rather than there being three pastors or eight of us that are elders are the only ones that qualified or able to go visit the sick, now we had 35, 40 people able to minister to people's needs in a circumstance like that. So the responsibility of the leaders to make sure the church is doing that. And there's probably some others that I have missed, but when you put all of those things together, this isn't a responsibility for the faint of heart. This isn't a responsibility for the lazy individual. This isn't a responsibility for a person that I'll just wing it kind of thing. This, is a, this these needs to be for the serious individual as far as the faith is concerned. And with that being said, all of those things that that person is going to do, that being said, notice that Paul doesn't now begin to list qualifications that are academic, or qualifications related to a person's intelligence, or qualifications related to a person's status in society. He lists qualifications that are connected with the person's character. The closest thing to a qualification that is, uh, like those academic type things that I mentioned to you, is in 1 Timothy chapter three, in the similar list that we have here in Titus, at the end of it, he says able to teach. But even that one is debated by scholars, is, is he communicating able to teach in the sense of teach others, or is he communicating teach able, or teachable? And teachable kind of fits with all the other things that are mentioned there, but one, of the, one way or the other, the vast majority of these qualifications that the apostle gives has to do with the person's character and not their abilities. And that's what qualifies an individual for spiritual leadership their godly character. Timothy, Titus's job, excuse me, as was Timothy's, is to find individuals that most closely meet these qualifications, appoint them to serve as elders, and then spend the rest of the, his time discipling those individuals to grow in those character traits as well. Does that make sense? Are you with me? So he says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. The first qualification, he says, is above reproach. Now, some versions, depending on what you're reading, translate this as blameless. And I think that's an unfortunate translation. Because blameless gives the sense of sinless perfection. If anyone has never done anything wrong, you're going to point them to be an elder because the reality is we wouldn't have any elders. (laughs) Anywhere in the world we wouldn't have any elders. And so I I do think it's kind of an unfortunate uh, translation. We know that it can't be sinless because nobody is sinless and nobody would qualify then for leadership. The word that is used, it's translated into the two English words above reproach. It's a word which means nothing to take hold upon. So there must be nothing in the life of a leader that others can take hold of and attack their life and attack their church that they're going to be leading. This speaks of this idea of an unquestioned integrity where no one, whether it be in the church or even in the community as a whole, well, what do I care what they think about me? Well, you better because you're going to be a leader in that particular community where no one can take, could stand up and say, look, I know that this man is involved in this, or this man is involved in that. Nobody could do that. So that's this first area here, this idea of being above reproach. Again, we talked a little bit more about it in our First Timothy 3 study. You can go back to that. The next two areas that Paul draws our attention to are involve the home life of the potential leader. And so he says, the husband of one wife and that his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery. Debauchery is sin, it's uh, depravity um, here. He also mentions insubordination as well. Now, regarding the first one, uh, we're both of them. This is not to say that an elder has to be married, because that said, it, you know, the husband of one wife. It's not saying that he has to have kids necessarily here. But this second, this qualification here, it's been understood in a variety of, of ways. Some say this about this idea of the husband and one wife, that an elder must be married. Well, if that's the case, then Paul couldn't have been an elder and Jesus couldn't have served in the role that he did. Others, are, others say that it refers to the fact that he can never be divorced. A divorced individual can never serve in that particular role. Some have argued it from this verse. Others have said they could be divorced, but they can never remarry again. A husband and one wife, Regardless of the reason, by the way, for the divorce, which is a longer conversation, but we could talk about that. Some have taken it so far that even if the first wife died, that a person that wants to be eligible to be an elder must never remarry. I don't think that's what it's saying here. Some have used this as a case against polygamy. And I certainly think the Bible speaks about that, but I don't think that's what it's speaking about here. I'll remind you, we talked about this in 1 Timothy. The phrase means a one woman man. And so I don't think what Paul's getting at here is that a leader has to be married. I don't think he's getting at this idea here of biblical divorce and whether such a thing is possible, and if a person's disqualified if they're involved in it, and I I don't even think he's talking about polygamy, as I pointed out earlier, I think the literal phrasing is less concerned with the person's marital status as it is with the person is perceived as living in such a way where they are married to, in in a different sense of the term, they are loyal to, they are connected with one and only one woman, and that is their wife. They are a one-woman man. And they live their life in honesty toward their wife. They live their life in faithfulness toward their wife. It's clear by others just peeking in that they are devoted to their wife. This person's married life will serve as an example of purity to the entire flock. I think that's what Paul is really getting at here. This man has developed a lifelong reputation of faithfulness to his his wife. Now, the second area, it also involves the home, and it was that his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And so if you have a man who will not spiritually and morally lead his own family, well, then that individual is not qualified to lead an entire congregation. They're not ready for that responsibility of others' spiritual care if they haven't poured into their own family at first. It's been said this, Christian living and Christian service must begin at home. Now, of course, we know that nobody, a parent even, doesn't have total control over their children and the decisions that their children are going to make, particularly as those children get older and they become adults themselves. We can't make anybody believe anything, certainly so. But the question that has to then be asked is, are the children rebelling against God because of their father's leadership? And because of their father's example, or lack of it, or in spite of their father's leadership, and in spite of their father's example. Because there's plenty of families, I'm sure you could say, where one kid in the family goes this direction, and the other kid goes that direction. One kid is all in with the Lord, and the other is, no, I'm not. And the parents, same parents that were pouring into those children. And so although a mom or dad can't determine the salvation of their children, They can prepare the way of the Lord, so to speak, much like John the Baptist did. Prepare the way of the Lord so that the child is more receptive, the young person is more receptive to walk with the Lord. And one of the key things that we do, certainly you're sharing the word in their lives here, but you're living a life that is free from hypocrisy. Because you could tell anybody all you want about the faith and Jesus and what God has done for me. But what they're going to do, all of them, your kids as well, they're going to pull back and they're going to watch your life. And if it's not real, they're going to know it's not real. And you gave me the best sermons, dad, in the world, but I just watched your life for the most important sermon I needed to look at. And if your life doesn't measure up with it and there's hypocrisy and there's inconsistency, not perfection, but hypocrisy and inconsistency, your kid's going to take notice of that and they're not going to be interested in your God. That person is not yet ready to be a leader in God's church. They need to focus on these other areas first. Paul said above reproach. As he moves into the next verse, he mentions it again. It's, it's I think he kind of he mentioned it. Then he he focused on the family. Now he's going to focus again back on the individual and just things that are going on in the heart of the individual, the general character of the individual. And he starts with I think it's five a list of five things that in their character trait they can have. You want to be an elder? You want to be a leader in God's church? Here's some things that you can have working in your life. Now, to begin with, though, notice in verse 5 he says, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Let me comment on that word steward. That word steward means a household manager. Or maybe we don't have these in our lives so much here. So you think of a business that has an owner of the business, but the owner of the business is sitting on the beach somewhere and so they hire a manager to do all the work um, there. Well, that manager doesn't own the business. That manager doesn't necessarily get to make all the decisions and go whatever direction he or she wants to go. There may be some that they've been given authority of, but ultimately they will be answered to the owner. They will be answering to the owner. Paul says a steward, uh, as God's steward, must be above reproach. The elder, the overseer, has been entrusted by God to care for his church. It's not the elder's church. It's not the pastor's church. It's not the overseer's church. It's God's church. And that elder, that overseer, that pastor will give an account someday of how they led God's church. Paul's very clear with that. He reminds Titus of that for his own life, but he also uses it as, Titus, when you're looking for people, We don't want to set people up for failure. We don't want to set people up for discipline. So don't pick the wrong people, put them in place, and get them in trouble with God. You're kind of with me with where I'm going with the word picture here, where they're going to get to heaven. Like, I didn't even want to be the elder. They made me be the elder. I wasn't ready for it, or whatever. I'm kidding a little bit here. And so he reminds Titus, remember, these people are stewards of God's church. Be very careful who you appoint to that role he says, these are the the qualifications they can have. You want to have a successful elder ministry, someone do a good job and be successful in that ministry. He said, the first thing they cannot be is arrogant. And so I'll read it to you. He says, he must not be arrogant. And in that opening, he must not That carries over to quick-tempered. He must not be quick-tempered. He must not be a drunkard. He must not be violent, and so on. And so the first one we have is, he must not be arrogant. Some versions translate this as self-willed, and a self-willed person is a person who always wants to have it his own way. A self-willed person, this arrogant person, it describes someone who asserts his own will with complete disregard for how others might be affected. I don't care. I'm the pastor. We're going to do it my way. I'm the elder of this church. We're going to do it my way. And If you don't like it, go find another church. Go become an elder somewhere else so you can make the decisions. It describes this arrogant, describes a person who not only disregards the interest of others, but even ultimately will disregard the interest of God because they're self-willed. It's all about them. Paul says that's not going to be a good pick for an elder, an overseer, a pastor of your congregation. You're not setting that person up to succeed. They're just not the right person for the job. He goes on. He says that such a person must not be, remember, it carries over, must not be quick-tempered. Now, this isn't referring to the guy that gets frustrated from time to time, though we should talk and to myself. <laughs> it happens. Eagles games. It happens. It speaks of someone who just has this constant simmering anger. What are you mad at all the time? This person just always, there's something. He's angry about something. It speaks of a person that harbors bitterness and carries it around with them. They're mad at this guy because 35 years ago they did this to me. And they're mad about it. It simmers with them. It speaks about the person that has a propensity toward anger or has, used, has learned to use the threat of anger to get their way. Not the type of person that should be leading your church or your congregation. Because you know, oh, if I offend them, they're going to be so angry with me, and I don't want to make them angry with me. So you do whatever they want. That is so unhealthy. Whether you're an elder or a dad or a mom, I'm sure ladies do it too, but it feels like men use that more. It's just so unhealthy. Don't do it. If you're doing it, stop. And if you don't know how to stop, go before the Lord, pray, confess it as sin, and let him begin to work on your heart in that particular area. But it certainly shouldn't be the person that is leading God's church in a way that's completely opposite of how God operates, right? Are you with me? And so he says they cannot be quick-tempered. A person like that is not fit to serve as an elder, a pastor, or an overseer. The next one he says is not a drunkard. Now, I don't think here... Paul is getting to this point of they can't have any consumption of alcohol, though I do think an argument can be made for that in our society and the benefit that that would have in the lives of others and our own life. But I don't think that's what Paul is getting at. What he's talking about is a level of, of consumption of alcohol, wine is mentioned here because that's what they had, that would cause the elder to lose their mental alertness, cause them to uh, lose for... for a, Period of time, sort of good judgment. The person in spiritual leadership needs to be clear headed. They need to be in control of their senses. They need to be in control of their judgment at all times because you never know when ministry is going to occur and when you're going to be needed for ministry. The real phrase here is it's translated drunkard in the ESV. It's a little bit different in some of the other versions, but it's sitting long over wine. All right, it's one thing to have a little sip of it or something here, it's sitting long over it, and it's going to have its impact. I, I really liked what John Phillips said about this. He says, an elder who tarries long over his wine is disqualified from becoming an elder. An elder should be tarrying long in the word of God. So Paul says, says that one. They must not be a drunkard. The fourth thing, he says, is they must not be violent. Some versions use the word striker. And this is referring to a person who uses physical violence as a mean means to settle their disputes. Can't be the way of an elder. But the word that was used was not only, in, in the Greek, was not only for someone who physically lashes out, but a person who threatens to physically lash out. Such a person uh is not qualified to be a leader in God's church. That the one who desires to lead God's people, they cannot use or resort to the use of physical force to get their way as they interact with other people. And the striker is accustomed to doing that. There's, there's a In some of your more modern translations, that just try to give you the idea, but they aren't necessarily super accurate, use the word bullying here. And I know that's a word that's really popular in our culture and all that, and everybody's bullied about everything, and I'm not sure in every situation it is that. But nonetheless, um, that's real. It still does happen, even though maybe not to the prevalence of the way that it's ke- thrown around today. And Paul says, such a, p- a person, they're not fit to serve. If they're bullying everybody around to get their way and empowering themselves, that's not a mark of godliness. Paul says in verse 7 that he must not be greedy for gain. I like the way the King James says it. Given to filthy lucre. I'm not quite sure what it means. I just like the way it sounds. Given to filthy lucre. That's a person that's money hungry. It's a person that will, they do what they do for what they can gain from what they do. They'll serve as an elder. They'll serve as a pastor. They'll serve as an, an overseer ultimately for what they themselves can gain. Now typically a lot of people money is what they're chasing after but I think this can go even further power authority influence I want to be the person everybody looks to or whatever and they'll pursue that particular route for what they can gain from being in the ministry. Now we know the scripture is clear that a laborer is worthy of his wages. It says that Paul makes that case elsewhere here but if the ministry is seen as a money-making opportunity, you're probably not the person, you're not the person qualified to serve in that position. They're gonna, it's going to cause a problem eventually. So don't be these things. Now, Paul goes on. And starting in verse 7, he, he gives the positive. Verse 8, actually, he gives the positive. This is what they do need to be. And so I'm going to go back to verse 7, read that opening ver- uh, phrase, And then pick up in verse 8. Verse 7 says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be, verse 8, hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Hospitable. That's a person that gives practical help to anyone who is in need. And whether that's a friend or a stranger, whether it's a believer or an unbeliever, this person sees a need, They follow the Lord's direction, and they meet that need, and and hopefully what is best for that person, all right? And I'm thinking of Jesus' words. He said, uh, you know, if you'd give to this guy because he could pay you back, well, what good is that, right? You know what I'm talking about? Some of you are like, nope, no idea. (laughs) It's a need passage. Look it up here. This idea is anyone that has a need, not because of what I can gain from it. I'm just going to serve because that's the attitude of my heart, hospitality, They freely offer their time. They freely offer their resources. They freely offer themselves so they can be an encouragement to other people. Such a person, that person has the heart. And that person has demonstrated that in their life they would be a good spiritual leader. Those in church leadership need that. It goes on. It talks about a lover of good. Maybe your version says a lover of goodness. And so this is good people. I think some versions say that. Lover of good people. Um, But it's not just good people, it's good things. This person, Warren Wiersbe, he said it this way, this would include good men, but it also includes good books, good music, good causes, and many other good things. A man is a good man because he has a good heart and he surrounds himself with good things. Wiersbe would go on in that passage to say, if you find a good person in your life, drop everything and become their closest friend if you can because of how important that person is in our lives and how that person and their life can influence us. The phrase that comes to mind is garbage in, garbage out. If you're hanging around these, ty- these people, or you're watching these things, or you're reading this material, it will have its impact on you. Get around good people and good things. Third, he says, the overseer as God's steward must be self-controlled. Some versions say sensible. And by sensible, it doesn't mean they make good practical decisions. It doesn't mean they, they have good common sense. That's not what, what Paul is getting at here. What he's getting at, and that's why it's translated self-controlled in some versions, is in, they are in control of their senses. It refers to an individual. They're prudent. They hear things, and they can hold on to a secret. They are in control of the, their tongue. And what they say, and they're able to keep quiet when they need to. They're discreet here. If this refers to a person that is serious. Now, Not that they never laugh, not that they never tell a joke or anything like that, not that they're always sober and somber because I'm on the way of God or something like that. But it's a person that knows there are the right time for things. It's a person that understands that humor in certain circumstances can really denigrate a situation. And it's just not the right time for it. David Guzik, he said, they know how to deal with serious subjects in serious ways. and the ministry, you face serious subjects. You know, we got to dedicate a baby last week. That's sweet. That's fun. That's wonderful. But then there are other circumstances that are just hard. And you can't go in poking, telling jokes. And we're going to get by with, you know, having just a fun and cheer up. It's going to be great. No, you need to minister to people in the depths. Of their circumstances. Paul says a person that has this quality, they live an exemplary life on the outside because on the inside, through the Holy Spirit's empowering, they've learned how to control themselves. That's the type of person that should be your elder, your pastor, or your overseer. He continues in verse 8. He says that the an overseer is God's steward. They must be upright, holy, and disciplined. Some versions translate it just, devout, temperate. The idea of upright or just, I appreciate, it's a person that's committed to an understanding of what is fair and equitable for others. And they're committed to that. They don't play favorites. They don't just, you know, I I like this type of person but not that type of person. They're committed to what is right and what is just. And that's how they approach, they will approach their leadership. That's his primary concern to do the right thing. Paul says that they're holy, or it's the word devout. This refers to a a genuine obedience to God's word, or at the very least, a genuine commitment to be obedient to God's word. Again, they're not perfect, but this is a person that isn't going to look around and say, well, no one's here to see, so I'm going to engage in this. They're committed to God and his word, and they live their life accordingly. doesn't matter if there's 50 people behind them or nobody behind them. doesn't matter if no one's ever going to catch me or it's going to be on the news tonight. They're not going to go that direction anyway. And if they do, they're going to confess it as sin. They're going to agree with God, and they're going to purpose in their heart to forsake that as they continue to move forward. They're holy. They're devout. The last one, this idea of disciplined or temperate, again, it's translated in some versions self-controlled once more. I'm reminded of Matthew Henry. I shouldn't say I'm reminded, like I memorized all his writing. I read this in Matthew Henry's writings. He said, how unfit are those to govern a church who cannot govern themselves? Self-control. Now, Paul's not saying in this list here, look, you do these things, and you're forfeiting salvation if you do these things. But what he is saying is, Look, if this is the type of person you are, you are forfeiting leadership in God's church because these are the types of qualities that the leaders of God's church needs to have. Well, that's such a high standard. Nobody can meet that particular standard. Sure they can with the empowering of God. So just, right toward others. Holy, right toward God. Self-controlled, right toward yourself. Paul says these questions quality, character, these characteristics, these qualities need to be the person that is leading God's church. Now he, he ends in verse 9, the R section, and he says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction to, in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So this gets into, okay, so we learned all about the type of person he needs to be, but what's he going to do? Well, what he's going to do is, is he's going to give instruction in sound doctrine, and he's going to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. Now, we could put a job uh, ad out there looking for an elder, and we need an elder that's going to teach sound doctrine and rebuke those that don't teach it. But notice what Paul says first. He says this is the quality trait that that person needs to have if they're gonna do that faithfully. Are you with me? And so what that quality trait is this, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught or as he has been taught. Because the person who holds firm to the trustworthy word as he was taught by Paul in this context here, that person will be able to consistently give sound instruction And that person will be able to speak into the lives of those that have gone astray and rebuke that person. So the the person here must know God's word. And even more importantly than that, cling to God's word with full confidence. This is our guide. All right. We don't look at this and say, yeah, I understand that Paul said that, you know, 2000 years ago, but times have changed. Have you read what the new journal has come out and said and take our direction from this movement or that, or Oprah or whomever. I say Oprah, that was like 50 years ago. Um, Now, whoever the voice is now that is out there telling us what the new trends are in, uh, in thinking, we don't turn to those things for our direction. We turn to the word. If those things agree with the word, they may give us some insight on some stuff, but we go to the word of God. And the elder who holds firmly or to the trustworthy word, holds firm to the trustworthy word as he's been taught, is qualified to lead God's church. He sees the word of God as trustworthy. Holding firm, it means to strongly cling or adhere to something or to someone. And here, like you can picture that there's sort of this flash raging flood And a person's car has been sort of swept away or they themselves have been swept away and they're going down with this water and it could get more and more dangerous. Who knows where this water is going to take them? And they hit a tree and they cling to that tree or they cling to that telephone pole and they're not going to let go of it lest the flow take them away. Paul says that's how they have to hold to God's word. It must be something they're not going to deviate from, never deviate from, regardless of the circumstances that they're facing. They're unwaveringly loyal to the scripture. And the man who is not committed to knowing God's word, reading God's word, knowing God's word, applying God's word, and living God's word for themselves, they have no business leading God's church. Because that's what God would have for every one of us as individual followers of Christ. And if the leaders aren't doing that, it's just a matter of time before the congregation isn't doing that. That person has no business leading God's church. Leaders of God's church need to be devoted to God's word and the faithful application of God's word. He says, so that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Sound, we talked about it with 1 Timothy. It's where we get our English word hygienic or hygiene. It has this idea of health, cleanliness and health. This person with the sound doctrine will build up the church. It'll make it stronger, healthier. And then there will be the time when folks will stray from God's word. This elder needs to be able to speak truth and bring the person back on track. No, no, you're following this, this thinking, this idea, or you're misunderstanding this. Let me show you God's word. Let's get you back on track that person is qualified. So as you look at these qualifications here, go back, look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, certainly so. You see they're all character traits. Godly men, faithful men, men committed to God's word, men that will take it seriously and will teach it with conviction and integrity. That's the type of leadership of a church And one would expect that's going to carry over into the congregation of the church because that's what the people are being taught. That's the type of church that God blesses. And may that ever be, honestly, may that ever be those types of words, may they ever be the words that are used to describe us and the work we're doing here at Calvary Mercer. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, you know uh, that we we don't always measure up to our own standard for our lives. And so certainly we fall short of your perfect standard for our lives. But Lord, we, uh, boy, we are so grateful for your grace, for your mercy, for your cleansing, for your washing. We're so thankful for the ministry of your Holy Spirit in your life. You guide us, you direct us, you bring us conviction. Lord, you, uh, In that conviction, you draw us back to your son, back to the cross again where that cleansing is afresh. And so, Lord, we pray that as we consider these things, Lord, we don't want to look at this list and say that's beyond me. But we want to look at it and say this is what God wants to create in me. And we would just open our hearts, whether we're leaders or not. If we're followers of Christ, godliness is godliness. And you want to do this work in every one of us. And so, Lord, help us to take inventory prayerfully and then respond as you guide us and lead us that we might walk in your ways. And I pray today in Jesus' name, amen.